You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 161 of a Life Ruins podcast. Reinvestigate the careers and research of those living life ruins. I'm your host, Carl Tugover, and I'm joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. For this week's episode, we are joined by our regular guest, Depression. Now, with that being said... <laughs> <laughs> Did I ever tell you guys the story of my dad when I was talking to him, updating? He's like, how's Carlton? And I kind of updated him and he was like, man, the three of you have just terrible luck with women. (laughs) (laughs) You can join us at our other podcast, How to Be Bad with Women. Yeah, How to to Stay Single. How to Stay Single. All right. Yes. <laughs> today we are going to talk about. Speaking of being dead inside, today we're going to talk about evidence for deliberate burials by Homo naledi. Today will be about burial practices, mortuary things, ossuaries. Homo is like that's all. That's all good. You guys okay? Yeah. I mean, this is just Wednesday for me. Like, like we're all good. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That was great. Yeah, Homo Naledi. Apparently, uh, according to, to recent research that has come out by... Lieberger and Associates. Lieberger and Associates. It is Burger and Associates, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. For some reason... Yeah, I, uh, I thought that was a Bob's Burgers joke. I don't know why. I'm There's sorry. There's probably some in there. Probably. Yes, by Berger et al. 2023, Evidence for Deliberate Burial of the Dead by Homo Naledi. Uh, this is a big deal for a number of reasons. As anthropology is, topics are often debated, sometimes violently. But the concept of intentional burials by the genus Homo is one of those. And so even when it comes to just talking about did Homo neanderthalensis bury their dead is a hotly debated topic. And what was that so the species fact that, name? What? Yeah, what, uh, what's, what, what was that species name you just said there? Homo sapiens neanderthalensis. There you go. That's right. <laughs> so when do you guys agree on that? Over your head. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but Homo naledi is older in the Homo tree. It's older, but it's not like... Like Homo erectus was making fire a million years ago and flint napping. So 300,000 years ago is not that big a deal to me, at least. I'm trying to figure out where the hell it is on the family tree. You know who does know? Who's who's made a whole video on Homo naledi? North O2? Our buddy Stefan Milan. <laughs> Don't tell him he's on the podcast. <laughs> He might not answer. We were talking about sushi earlier, so you might think it's about that. Yo, Carlton. Hey, yeah. Steph. How you doing, man? Good. How's it going? It's going well. I had got my sushi fixed the other day. I bought something that was, it, it said it was like fried salmon, but it, it wasn't. It was weird. But I have a question for you that's related to anthropology. Yeah. So Homo. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just about to join a Zoom meeting. But I'm so sorry. Anyway. Yes. Homo Naledi. How old is it? Like... Two to three hundred thousand, I think. Two to three hundred. Three hundred thousand, I think. Okay, in a- in Africa. Yeah, South Africa. Perfect. What makes them different from other Homo species? What makes them different is that it's a late survival of small brain hominins. We figured they had basically all died out with the evolution of Homo erectus. 
that big brain hominins would replace all small brain hominins because we're big and we're smart, big brains, blah, blah, blah. Then first Homo floresiensis was found, which is small brained, but that was sort of excused away because they're so on a small island in Indonesia. And we were like, oh, well, big brain hominins still dominated everywhere else. But Homo naledi is a small brained hominin in South Africa, sort of right in the cradle of where humans evolved. And seemingly survived for like well over a million years after he's reading the, the script. evolution of Homo erectus. So he's about to do a Zoom call about this with somebody. That, like classic progression of human evolution that big brains dominated and replaced all small brain hominins because clearly there was one population of small brain hominins still chilling in South Africa for ages after Homo erectus evolved. Awesome. Did you read that new paper that came out about them burying their dead? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just the preprint, right? I, I've, I've been keeping up with that. I haven't read the preprint itself, but that basically oh, argued that corrected. they may have buried that dead. Well, sounds good. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I'll let you get back to that Zoom call. Yeah, all uh, right. Take it easy. Bye, Stefan. See ya. Bye. <laughs> Connor put in the chat while that was happening is, why is he so much better than us? <laughs> Just off the cuff, man, and did it all like that. It's it's impressive. The it's one of Stefan, Stefan Milo. Yeah. All right. So, so two hundred to three hundred thousand years ago. Yeah, yep. and kind of like I was saying, like it, Homo erectus had been long established by then. Yeah. And I guess to to sum up what Stefan was saying is like there's still like this small branch of like Australopith or Australopithine. Aust- Australopithecine-ish, uh, I guess that's the word I'm looking for, like a lineage that's still going on there, and that's what Naledi is. So to me, like if there's Homo erectus making fire, we know Homo erectus had fire a million years ago, so Homo naledi could have been like, you know, monkey see and monkey doing that. Well, aren't we all just author of Australopithecines hanging out? Some I would say we're all Homo like erectus him. hanging out. Oh, 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 yes. <laughs> yes. This is found in one cave in like a super intense cave system in in South Africa. So this is like the really only known instance of Naledi. Um, it was kind of hit the scene. Was it like two or three years ago? It was this kind of new kind of. Yeah, they found it in 2013, but it, it kind of dropped two years ago, a year ago. Yeah. yeah. So discovered in. Dinaledi chamber of the Rising Star Cave system in South Africa. During an expedition led by Lee Berger beginning October 2013 in November of 2013 and March 2014, over 1,550 specimens from at least 15 Homo Naledi individuals were recovered from this site. Interesting note that he could only take really small people into the cave. Like he had to employ like a bunch of like smaller gentlemen and smaller women because it was such a tight fit to get back into these areas. I don't know if there's like a documentary out there, but there's some really cool articles about that kind of stuff. So yeah, this is, this is a big thing. And if they are indeed burying their dead, it changes a lot and really kind of challenges some of our thoughts about the earliest human burial practices, which we, I think we associate with like probably what Homo Neanderthalensis or Homo sapiens. Yeah, definitely Homo sapiens Neanderthalensis. Definitely associated with them because it because it comes gets wrapped up. We when we really talk about two major things: identity, care. Well, maybe not two major things, but definitely like care of another individual or altruism and then concepts of the dev or the afterlife. Usually these concepts are 
really looked at between Neanderthals and Modern Homo sapiens sapiens. Yeah. And so it's highly debated whether Neanderthals did it. There's limited evidence, which we'll talk to, talk about in a bit. Nothing else beyond that. Of intentional, like buried or placed burials like this. Yes. Yeah. Because exactly. like elephants obviously have burial grounds and stuff like that. Other animals do too. And like chimps kind of mourn their dead. They don't really bury them, but they like easily older hominids could have just been like, you know, not a scaffold burial, I guess, but just left them somewhere and like cried and then left. I don't know. Yeah. No. It's entirely possible. Let me read the abstract real quick. If I'm allowed to read in this podcast anymore. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, so this is for the, the burger article. So, recent excavations in the Rising Star cave system of South Africa have revealed burials of the extinct hominin species Homo naledi. A combination of geological and anatomical evidence shows that hominins dug holes that disrupted the subsurface stratigraphy and interred the remains of Homo naledi individuals, resulting in at least two discrete features within the D. naledi chamber and the Hale antechamber. These are the most ancient interments yet recorded in the hominin record earlier than evidence of Homo sapiens interments by at least 100,000 years. These interments, along with other evidence, suggest that diverse mortuary practices may have been conducted by Homo naledi within the cave system. These discoveries show that mortuary practices were not limited to Homo sapiens or other hominins with large brain size. Yeah. So, pretty big stuff. Yeah. But I don't mean to diminish the the paper, but this Arizona grad, I can't remember his name. Him and I were talking, uh, LaPrell. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, what's his name? Great guy. Awesome. We text. I forget his name right now. Him and I were talking at the water screens one day and like somebody was asking us about human evolution. And I just said like, I don't know if you'd agree with this dude, Rob, that's his name. It's like, I don't know if you agree with this Rob, but like, I think we're all just mutant homo erectus like every denisovans neanderthals modern humans we're all just some evolution of homo erectus that got regionalized and then interbred and he was like no absolutely like it's just the easiest way to think of it so if that's going on and like this naledi thing is definitely not an offshoot of homo erectus it's i don't know if it's a different branch i'd have to see like the tree but to my understanding yeah, but you, you can look at a million different trees. I don't think that's the one thing I fucking can't stand about paleoanthropology. It look up a human tree. All of them are different. Like no one can agree. We did. A, didn't we do a whole episode on lumpers and splitters and stuff like that? We did. But it's like when yeah. you go from Kanto to Johto and you're like, wait, so there's a, a, a primal form of Pikachu that was called Pichu and no one in Kanto figured that out for hundreds of years. But you just cross this waterfall and go across to Johto and then, the, <laughs> then there's, a, there's a baby Pikachu. Like what? I just love how you have that like keyed up and ready to go. Aren't there two it's more like, before Pichu too? Because there's the minus one and the plus one. Uh, I can't. And that's remember. in another region. Like, but there's yeah, a pre Jigglypuff. There's a or Togepi. Like, well, no, they figured out Togepi. How did they not know that Pokemon laid eggs in the first one? Professor Oak was the shittiest professor of all time. <laughs> and then they went. And then there's <laughs> Professor Elm, and he was like, "Hey, these things actually breed and make eggs," and like despite some of them being mammals and despite most of them being reptiles or dinosauric, why are they, why do they have... So anyway, it's like, it's like that. Homo naledi is like crossing into Johto <laughs> or later on when they have Pokemon X and Y, they have a whole other just area of the world where no one was in contact with the other with new Pokemon species, 500 of them that are just not, were not in the original Pokemon game. So 
Yeah, there hasn't been enough time and, and this stuff study enough to really do the genetics and, and things like that. This is going to take years okay. and years to kind of flesh out exactly where this comes from. Same with the Denisovans or Denisovans. That information is so sparse and so small that like yeah. we need like a bigger sample size. And that's also some beef I have with paleoanthropology is that the sample size on this shit is like not Tiny. significant even remotely. All I could think of after David's Pokemon comparison was that scene from Billy Madison. <clears throat> Mr. How, what you have just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I've ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response or even close to anything that could have been considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul. I respectfully disagree. That was a great analogy for people who play Pokemon. <laughs> but no, that is funny. I've never seen Billy Madison, actually. I what? don't think I finished the whole thing. <clears throat> I don't, it's one of those shows that, movies that pops on like, you know, Comedy Central or FX or something. I just never like fully watched it. Kind of like Terminator or any of those. Okay, I'm looking at a thing. Where is Homo Naledi on this bad boy? Homo Naledi is an offshoot of Homo habilis, Homo redolfans, Homo erect. So this is fucked. I don't like, what is this one? This is, this upends what I well, talk about. Remember, there's only one cave they're found with these number of individuals. Now, granted, this is the, this system has the single most amount of individuals in Africa outside of Homo sapiens. Like in terms of like this site is, is peculiar for a number of reasons. What I am interested in then as, as we were talking, looking at the publications and who did this, right. As we've talked about when it comes to paleoanthropology from a number of our paleoanthropologists have come on about the, Paleoanth Mafia. Like, do we think our boy Burger is like this is his gatekeeping, possibly? As other I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. He's he found the I, site, I he's think publishing about that, it. Because there's like you can only have tiny people go in there into the caves. And yeah, he, he had to lose fifty five pounds to fit in there himself, it said. Good for him. Yeah, I, I mean he probably had to like starve himself to get that skinny to get in there. I don't know what he looks like in, in general, but I've probably seen his face. But anyway, regardless, like they took plenty of pictures, it looks like though. So what you see there is what you get. But all it it is I could see how some people might find it gatekeepy that like, you know, only twelve people have been in here to see it. Yeah. I think they extracted that stuff and have It seems like so, top tier science to me. Yeah, and they and they have published all their figures and, and methods and stuff like that. So if you're if you do check out the article um eventually when it comes out, there is it's 133 pages full of figures and, and different sort of analysis and stuff like that. So I, I do respect yeah. them for that. I'm I mean, there probably is an element of mafia involved just because he's a high profile name mm-hmm. and he he probably gets some sort of preferential treatment in publishing and things like that. I wouldn't doubt that at all, but we'd like to think it's good science, but we'll, I think the the jury is still out on that. And I think this little segment here is out too. So we will be right back. And welcome back to episode 161 of a life Runs podcast. We're continuing to talk about the recent burials or suggested burials at Naledi in the Denaledi, Denaledi chamber. Denaledi. I don't know. Dinaletti. Where's that at, David? Yeah, Dinaletti. Dinaletti. What would you call that area? Oh, South Africa? Cradle of civilization. <laughs> I don't think it showed up. It did a little bit. Okay. <laughs> We're trying all the new things here on the on the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Some Chappelle show with the yeah. Do we have anything to add about to that the Naledi specific? Or do you want to we probably should talk about the 
individual burials themselves or why they think they're burials. Well, we can and also talk about the fact that there's symbolic culture in there too. That's pretty big. Yeah, let's let's hit the symbolic culture after what makes them burials and not just random. Like there wasn't some sort of geological event that just covered up a bunch of dead Naledians. Right. Yeah. For them, like pulling this up, they talk about how the is it the spacing of them? It's like the it's the way that they're in the ground suggests that they're consistent with intentional burials. The hominid is abstract shows that well, hominids dug holes that disrupted the subsurface stratigraphy and interred the remains. So it's not saying a burial; it's just saying that they they interred they them. They, it's very worded. Yeah. So I mean, the the important thing is that the sediment and stuff like that and the surrounding areas suggest that there there is internment. There is stuff being buried up apart from that. So if an individual just died there, you would expect zero disturbance in terms of the sediments, et cetera. But you can, in this, in this case, have a defined additional layer or changes between previous layers that shows that there was digging happening and mixing as part of this. So that's kind of, I think that's their big thing looking at the, the soil stratigraphy and stuff like that, which is important because I mean, that's, that's how we define burials and features, et cetera. Is that what you're reading of this is Carlton? Yeah, I mean, I, I buy it. I mean, yeah, they're not just it, they're It's clearly more than just laid there. Yeah, yeah, which would suggest like the earliest known form of treatment of the dead in genus Homo. Yeah, now I think I talk about this, or I mean, I know I talk about this in my lecture, but at the end, let's talk about like because like it's a significant leap in time when we start burying ourselves, but then also, I would argue when you start burying dogs because you're extending that idea of humanity onto another like creature but what before i like go into that i was saying like you, know, you gotta bury people like when they're dead you get sad so you gotta bury people but you gotta bury them six feet deep because hyenas have dug them up or like wolves or whatever and then after that that's going to become like a practice and then around that's going to become a ritual and then it's a habit thing that you make and that's going to lead to like an afterlife type thing so it's pretty complicated. At least that's my idea of how that evolution goes in like the human brain. But it, this just shows that it was going on long before that. And maybe they just never figured out to bury them six feet deep until Neanderthals kind of thing or like our humans, you know, are deep enough. Yeah. yeah, but the six feet burial is very specific to certain cultures too. Sure. I guess not exactly six feet, but you know what I mean? Like they, they yeah. buried them, buried them. Yeah. Because there's also like sky burials practice across the world. And we, like we would never be able to tell. Exactly. So they could be doing you know, that. <clears throat> yeah. There's a bunch of different forms. Like in terms of like interring people in the ground, archaeologists will find them. Now, if there's a different sort of like ritualistic treatment of the dead that won't be identifiable, archaeologist is absolutely possible. Yeah. Like we could have, we could be seeing it earlier in like Australopiths and stuff like that. But this is just the perfect storm where these, these things are buried in a cave. I also think it's interesting, David, what you're talking about. Like, so you have these, these patterns that become ritual, become habits. And then there's like the diffusion of that too, which I think is super interesting because like, right, cause it's all going to culturally differ. Yeah. Yeah, so it, and it can start from one place or it can be discovered independently or compared and changed as cultures interact, humans interact. It's kind of, a, I think that's a really interesting idea. And you wonder that, 
why you don't see it in like homo erectus, right? Or yeah, and I would I would argue homo erectus was just so mobile getting out of Africa all the way to almost Australia that they just didn't have time for that, like. Or they do something like sky burials or something like that. Yeah, because I mean, yeah. like w- the amount of time it takes to actual actually bury someone and the investment in that might be too difficult. Yeah, they just drop dead where they are, piss on them, and leave. <laughs> I don't think they pissed on them. <laughs> I don't think there's any evidence. In all of the two million years of Homo erectus being around, one pissed on a dead body. <laughs> That's an archaeological fact. <laughs> Maybe it got stung by a jellyfish. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, and it, it is interesting that I still think, I mean, before this, our, our best proof of human burial or homo sapien burial is Neanderthals, which is r- really interesting. Maybe they aren't moving as far as homo erectus and spreading and et cetera and have time and are in caves and have the ability to do that. But it's, what what kind of fuels that and where does that begin from is a kind of interesting topic. Yeah. And then it could also be like only certain individuals were awarded that right kind of thing or kind of like a pyramid, like only Khufu or Tutankhamun can get a pyramid. Other people just get thrown in the ditch. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the concept of Neanderthals burying their dead has been around since 1908. It's controversial. Very much. So it, they discovered a fairly complete Neanderthal skeleton near La Chapel aux Saints in France. La Chapelle aux Saints. Thank you, David. <laughs> La Chapelle aux Saints. And so even then, it was like laid in a fetal position, safely covered up from the elements, they suggest. But because it was done in 1908, critics and skeptics have said they've done it sloppily. The argument continues to this day, but the fact, but it was it was a burning question in 1908. Remember, they found the first homo Neanderthal sapien Neanderthal skeleton in 1856 in the Inder Valley. So like just over 50 years after the first one was found, they're like, Oh, they were burying their dead. That was a, that was a big deal. There have Um, been other Neanderthal burials. And that, and that you could see, you could trace that questioning and about that to like the initial thoughts about Neanderthals as big, dumb brutes and not being able to associate them with sort of complex culture and and things like that. So I I do think we have like, and as We'll kind of talk about we have some better evidence now that that suggests that they are bearing in. So La Chapelle All Science was the first one, but the the most intense and kind of extensive mm-hmm. burials, yeah, is at Shanadar Cave, which is in Iraq, I believe. Just north yeah. northeast northeast of Mosul. Cradle of motherfucking civilization. <laughs> yeah. And that one, Stefan, our friend that Carlton has on speed dial, is I hope just don't tell him he was on the episode. <laughs> he did a video on this and like if you want to look at the video, you can get it. it Tori drew a, a representation of this individual. His eye was bashed in, dude. Like he like the orbit was just destroyed. Uh, he was missing an arm and he had some other like ailments. And like we were saying in the interim that like he was just Steve the pirate, probably had a big leg, <laughs> eye patch, but also his teeth were like messed up, I think. So he was being cared for and fed because he was likely blind in that eye, at least maybe both. Yeah. And that's Shandar one is the individual we're talking about. Okay. Yeah. And there's five others that are associated with this six others, maybe. So 
but it is interesting. I mean, yeah, it's to, there's severe signs of deformity on him, worn teeth. Like this dude's walking around with like a fucked up limp. Like it's kind of wild. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, he so there's several Neanderthal burials. These are intentional burials. Um, Shenadar was discovered in 1960. Um, the most famous one of these burials was what's called Shenandar 4, and that has been nicknamed the flower burial. And the reason why that was is through soil samples taken from the surrounding area of that individual um, revealed pockets of pollen. And the person, Ralph, Dr. Ralph Selecki, the leader of the team and an anthropologist at Columbia University, he saw that this evidence of pollen was like they put flowers around the burial, and that's where that has come from. And that is also hotly deba- debated. And and I just learned this today because when we were talking about it in the interim, David's like, well, I know a professor that doesn't agree with that. So I started looking into it. Turns out, basically, the, the pollen surrounding Shenandoah 4 was shown to have been transported by burrowing rodents. It was Crotovina. Mm. Yeah, the rodents were moving the pollen around. So the, it's that, that idea of the flower burial has, has allegedly collapsed. But also there, you know, at Rockefeller Cave at Mount Carmel in Israel, that was actually, they, they were placed in a flower-lined grave. And the double burial, and actually the individuals are separated. One's uh, 11,700, the other's 13,700. I don't know if that's, that's for both of them. That's, that's but, clearly in range of like totally probably yeah. normal at that time. Yeah. Because the, so, the one with the dog is 10,000 years old. Mm-hmm. And dogs have been around for 30,000 years? Genetically 20, but I would say 30, yeah. Okay. So, but Neanderthals have definitely been burying their dead. And the reason why this matters is we kind of talked about, it's like this idea of identity, thinking about the afterlife. And there's this really good explanation of, if I can find the damn thing, like why an al- analysis of mortuary rituals provides a richly textured medium for which like ethnographers and archaeologists can examine like the crafting of social memory. It's in a book that many people probably heard of, Social Memory, Identity, and Death, Anthropological Perspectives on Mortuary rit- Rituals, edited by Meredith S. Chesson. That came out in 2001, so there's probably more modern stuff. Uh, stuff out but generally when you look at the dead you're looking at as david talked about like everyone else kind of coming to grips with it but it also goes into forms of identity like how you bury your dead matters for how you believe in the afterlife and your personhood so it, it means a lot that homo naledi is is potentially burying their dead or interring their dead in some way yeah and that, that kind of hints at the complexity of 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 their culture or whatever it is because i think that's that's what we associate with kind of complex culture is this this burial practices etc yeah by the way if you're listening to this and you like stefan we're not going to tell stefan while he's on the podcast we rely on you to email him and be like hey i really like your guest appearance in episode 161 <laughs> of life Rose podcast if you do that and, and bcc us you'll get a sticker yeah. on that email <laughs> Carlton, did you find that thing you were looking for? Yeah, I have it. Okay. Oh, yeah, I'll just read it. From an archaeological perspective, mortuary practices represent the complex interplay of emotions, material culture, and social memories of the mourners and the deceased in the past, testimonied by the material remains of their these ceremonies, namely grave goods, skeletal remains, and funerary structures. From ethnographic accounts, we know that mortuary rituals provide a sensuous arena in which the dead are mourned, 
Social memories are created and reasserted. Social bonds are renewed, forged, or broken, and individuals make claims for individual identities and group memberships. Both ethnographic and archaeological studies clearly illustrate the intensely complex interplay between people's identities, emotions, experiences, and desires, the multiple webs of social structures, and the use of material culture in primary and secondary mortuary practices. So that is from Social Memory, Identity, and Death, an introduction by Meredith S. Chesson, University of Notre Dame, as of 2001. Chosen, isn't it? Tuesday. I thought you were talking about some, like, Szechuan chicken or something. Szechuan like, what chicken? sort of, yeah, sort of. Because that, yeah. that's, like, uniquely human. I mean, at, fundamentally, when we talk about burying the dead, we all, we all, regardless of where we're at right now, if you're a lone Kazakh listener, you know, how we bury the dead is a very personal but group bonding experience and we all know what goes on with the funeral and the practice. Yeah. Yeah, Like I know, like, I mean, for me, I know what to expect from like when one of my Pawnee relatives dies, I know what needs to happen for a Pawnee funeral versus like someone on my mom's side or my non-indigenous friends. Like those are two different practices and how we engage. The like Jewish side of my family funerals, you always put a rock on the grave and you, everyone takes a turn throwing dirt on it. And then there's like a, a Kaddish is what it's called. It's like the prayer that a rabbi reads. I've actually only been to Jewish funerals. I don't think I've been to, no, went to my grandpa's. He was Christian. Is that, is Shiva involved in that too? Or what is, what's a, we you sitting? You can sit. Oh yeah. I guess the practice is sitting Shiva. It's like you, you sit with the body for three days I don't know if it's to make sure originally if hyenas don't eat it. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there's probably a rabbinical purpose for it that I, I never went to Hebrew school, but our family just being New York Seinfeld Jews, just instead of sitting Shiva, went to a diner. <laughs> New York hung out together. Seinfeld Jews. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, no Shiva, but that's definitely yeah. a thing. And that's an old ass tradition too. Like, like Judaism's old. Well, I think that it's interesting. I've been to like Catholic funerals i've been to kind of more anglican presbyterian etc and it, there is like these this kind of spectrum of stuff that is done in certain practices i kind of like the new age version where we just like get drunk and hang out with your friends and talk shit about it. yeah yeah just have a good time i think that's uh, interesting but the the i was super shocked when i was a uh, young to go to a Catholic funeral and have the the body, the open casket sort of thing was like shocking to me as like a six year old yeah. or seven year old. Yeah. I never did an open casket thing. Yeah. It's, huh. it's freaky. My grandfather's funeral, my dad's dad, he was a Mason. So like all of like the Mason, like the Masonic lodge of like New York was there. I don't know if it was all of the state of New York or just where he was, but they have their own, funerary practices that I was that was the funeral I saw and I was like oh damn my grandpa was like legit <laughs> but uh, my uncle's a mason too my my native grandfather had a masonic aspect to his it was bonkers like his funeral was like Pawnee masonic and then also had a little bit of southern baptist into it huh. and there was also the veteran stuff there so there was there was a lot of different social groups Lots at play Ooh, that's wild on. Yeah, there was like a lot of different like rituals. Now that I think about us at the politics, I'm like, holy shit. Like, yeah, there was yeah. a lot of different social contexts in which people had to do things. We had someone standing honor guard. There was this 21 gun salute. Um, wow. Yeah, like, there was a there was a lot. I'm, I don't know if he was the first Native American in the Masonic Church or in the Masonic and the Masons. Order or whatever. 
Yeah, it's yeah. Scottish Rite, I think is what my grandfather and my uncle were. Well, it's because my grandmother was in the Order of the Rose, so I'm pretty sure that she got him in. Because hmm. the Order of the Rose is the female version. Anyways, we're totally off topic. We'll get back to more mortuary practice in the archaeological record right after these messages. Welcome back to episode 161, talking about mortuary practices of homos and <laughs> modern homos. Um, I mean, it's it's the truth, guys. Grow I'm up. Sorry. I'm so sorry. Why are you laughing? It's 2023. Just, Marriage is legal between the same sexes. It's cool. You know? I'm mostly laughing. You're a professor. Well, like, what's going on over here, Carlson? It's <laughs> June. We're going to have to cut that. We're going to have to cut that. No, no, no. We're it's funny. Leave that. <laughs> I know. It was just jarring the way I said it. What I was going to ask was, Connor, I cut you off last time. You said you went to Catholic funerals. That's what you've been to, and it's open casket. Yeah, I've I've only been to one Catholic funeral, and it was open casket. Why do you think that practice exists? I don't know the actual origins of it. I guess yeah. you can tell the person's there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it. I guess it's like a recognition of death, staring at it, kind of thing. Is I mean, it's also weird that we. They don't do open it's, caskets when they do like death of monarchs and stuff like that. They just have them sitting. At least the ones cabin. we know of. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you got so mauled by a bear, I guess you're not doing an open casket, you know? So it says in most cases, the body present at a vigil. Often Catholics prefer an open casket to allow loved ones to see the person who's died at a final time before burial. So that's probably, probably why. Some like I've seen thing. mostly Catholic ones and like also Pawnee ones are generally open casket. Oh, that's interesting. Because we had... Well, so, and I don't want to throw anyone on the bus because I know my tippo listens to this. So there was an instance in which someone said, we don't touch or see the body. So we also touch the dead. Like that was something that was instilled. Like you touch them to say goodbye, like rub their chest specifically, like their heart. Yeah. And just like, you just, you just say goodbye just so they can feel touched. But there was an instance where someone was like, yeah, we don't do that. And that's when I realized like, oh, this person is Pawnee, but there's also another tribe, a tribe that doesn't, that has very strict cultural taboos. Then I saw like, no, that's not a Pawnee practice. This is your other practice coming in. It was alarming for me because it was a, a practice in which it was predominantly Pawnees. So <clears throat> that was a whole thing. Interesting. Well, it is interesting, especially because when we have like multiple cultural identities now, the putting together of the certain burial practices is really interesting. Like as a Pawnee person also of another culture as well, like how do you do that properly? It seems, yeah. it seems tough. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of those things it's like, cause I think about it cause it's also the same as like marriage and like Mac and Emily did both weddings. They had Indian wedding in, in Pine Ridge and then they had where they were married by a pipe and then they had white wedding in Portland. So maybe it just like depends on, I mean, I'm going to be fucking dead. But I mean, I guess most people put this kind of stuff in their wills. Like my goddamn father, like for his funerary music, wants fucking jingle bells. Like he wants Christmas music is his idea. Like I want people to feel jolly. I'm like, fuck you. You're going to ruin December for me for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Like No, because then I'm going to be immediately brought back to your funeral, asshole. Like, no. Yeah. There should should be a stipulation as long as it's like, as long as he dies in like December or something. If it's in the Christmas season, I think that's appropriate. And maybe but it's a also, Michael Bublé version or something. <laughs> it's just something like Mariah Carey's like one that we all want to die. But that's another aspect. Like Pawnee funerals are like 
not necessarily happy, but there's a lot more joking and it's jovial because we're happy that they're back with the mm-hmm. stars. There's they're like people are sad at points, but like generally it's not the same strict, be quiet, pay respectful. Like we're making fun of the dead person. We're making fun of each other. Like we're telling yeah. those stories that are embarrassing that they can't defend because they're no longer around. Like that's kind of the vibe. Just throwing them right under like, the bus. It's different. Yeah, like yeah. I'd rather go to a Pawnee funeral because it's a it's a fun time. Yeah. I, fun time is not necessarily the right word. It's it's not as like I don't leave those funerals feeling melancholic, remorseful. Yeah. Like I'm not yearning for that. I'm not like oh my god, that person's gone. I'll never see them. Like I feel like okay, they've they've moved on. Like it's a different, it's a way different vibe. Like when I go to a Catholic funeral, I'm like. Oh yeah, it's just sad. God has them now. It's in God's hands. It's like it's a yeah. really different. Like it feels like they've been ripped from me. I don't know. I think I, it, maybe this is just me, but it feels like they're they're they've been removed from my life. Whereas in a Pawnee funeral, they feel like they've moved on to their next journey. If that makes any sense, like there's just yeah, very different context of the death. The other two funerals I went to, one of them was my uncle, my great uncle Harvey. He fought at Iwo Jima. Or he was an anti-aircraft gunner in Iwo Jima. So I don't know if he that meant he was shooting. Was there air, was an air fight at Iwo Jima? I don't know. Um, I think there were. It was very limited because by Elo, Midway was over. The so Coral Sea was over. Yeah, um, they shelled the fuck out of that island. Oh, so yeah, he was doing something like that. Anyway, I went to his when I was a kid. They buried him in New Jersey. No one wants to go to New Jersey, but I had to go for that. And then he, they put him in the ground as a rabbi. But my other uncle my mom's uncle died a few years ago in florida and we went down there and he was in the army during the korean war and he was in i think he was in east germany or west germany i should say and uh but there's someone playing taps like a an army guy and then Mm -hmm. like they gave my aunt jane like the flag and like that's a tradition too like just a simple funeral when they put him in like a little the standing like he was cremated and it was just one of those standing graves with like oh, a bunch whoa. of graves and you put it in there. What are those called? Not a mausoleum, uh, but mausoleum, yeah. But like the newer newer iteration of it where it's just Yeah, it looked yeah. like a male cubby. Like it was just put in there. But like it's a PO box. Yeah, yeah, I was like, all right, <laughs> just chill. But yeah, so like that's cool. I, I think that's the only military f- funeral I've been to. But yeah, the when the taps is played, it's always like kind of emotional and like, you know, my aunt was crying and the daughter was crying and I was just, yeah, my, uh, my grandfather was, was buried in Fort Logan in Denver and it was interesting because yeah, they did the same thing. They did taps. They did the 21 gun salute. He was in air force uh, okay. for a little bit. I think he was stationed in Germany, um, Korean war stuff, but it was really interesting because they almost had that process down like, uh, it was like a yeah, well-oiled was, machine. Was regimented. Yeah. Yeah. Like, which is, which yeah. I guess is military makes sense in a military context that it would be regimented because they had to do so many funerals for vets, you know, people, current military, et cetera, that they had to like push people through this. They were respectful and very kind to people during that time, but it was really interesting watching like the mechanics behind it. Yeah. Like they had to just keep this, keep this thing going because there's so many military vets that were being buried. Damn. Well-oiled. Yeah, actually, the funeral I went to last year, so it was at the Long Island Jewish Cemetery, I think is what it was called, and like, he got there, and it was just a a constant carpool of cars coming through, and they're like, are you with the Steinbergs? And I was like, yeah, and then like, they just push you through, and like, they got, they got a lot of Jews to bury that day. So it's just like, it was just pushing through and pushing through, and I was like, damn, this is so like, what's the word? 
I wouldn't say disrespectful. It's, like, it's just like, damn, there's an industry around burying people. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they are on a schedule. I kind of like this new age version where people are cremated and they might not have a spot in a cemetery, et cetera, but it's just spreading the ashes. I think that's much more simple process and a much more personal process than like these kind of like big funerals. They just, I don't know. That's just, I guess that's just personal opinion and I'm not very religious, so it doesn't yeah. mean well, that much to like me to be. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. My family's all buried on the same hill. Like that's like for me that that's kind of like the spot. Like yeah. there's, there's four cemeteries in Pawnee for the four bands. And so like my ancestors that died after the long walk are, are there. So like we're right next to each other. Although we had to go to tribal council. My uncle did a month or two ago because people started encroaching on our hill. And there was like nothing technically against the rules, but my uncle's like, that's that's our spot. At least get further because you're starting to get like too close to us. And there's at least 36 that need to be buried next. So, I mean, like we're going to be taking up some space up there. But I always like the idea of that tree burial thing where they like wrap you up in a cocoon. That's and cool. With the trees. Yeah. I always like that. Idea. Until Walmart buys the plot 50 years from now, I'm like, all right, we got to move these. <laughs> well, I think it's cool, Carlton, that you have that connection to family too, because I don't think... There, I guess there is a place in my family that some people are buried, but if it's all on one hill, I think that's that's super cool and powerful to be all together there in a special yeah, place. Chill. Like a Naledi situation. We have like one fenced off area because there's no markers, but that's like where it was like a, how much, how, what's considered a mass grave, but it's like a number of my family that died very soon after getting there. Mm-hmm. And then there's also like, especially early res days, with like infants not making it through. So like there's a number of those. So like there's this really clear, it, it kind of talks back like why does NAGPRA matter and like death? Cause it's like, I have a place where I can see, well, this is, these people died because of the Dawes Act. These people died because of Indian removal. Like I can yeah. like go through the Indian laws and be like, I can see relatives that were fucking affected by this every time I go home. You know what I mean? <clears throat> but even before that, when I was kind of thinking like archeologically and then, um, about that concept of identity. People have heard me talk about the Central Plains tradition a number of times across Kansas and Nebraska. Same houses, same pots, everything, but there is a difference. North of the Platte River, Central Plains tradition populations buried people in ossuaries. So very much similar to like woodlands where there's a mound, you threw people in it, covered up, another person dies, throw them on the mound, covered up. South mm. of that line is cemeteries. So same people, but two very different concepts of dealing with the dead. So there's yeah. other ways that this matters. As you were saying, David, about the thing. No, no, no. That's like, I think that's cool. Like the bringing up the Mississippian mound building things and yeah, like mound burials and then pyramid burial. Like, I don't think this, the Egyptian ones have actual bodies in them, but like, or at least all of them, like erecting a giant structure for somebody because of like the power they had and stuff is pretty cool. I mean, not for the people that didn't have power, but yeah. yeah. So Carlton, I got a question real quick. So they're the same cultural group, same cultural beliefs, but they just, they're not, I guess they're not the same cultural group, yeah. but they're, they're from the same family. I don't know how you would Yeah, so it's that. all the central plains tradition, but there's a difference really in, like there's a couple minor differences, but to me, the biggest ones of identity are like, they're burying their dead very different. Like the Southern style is like a more Mississippian nature, which kind of tracks with my research, but like also... This really kind of looks to me early vestiges of the differences between the Skiddy Pawnee, which is what I am, that northern group of ossuaries, mm-hmm. and the southern group of Pawn, you know, southern Pawnees. Because like there's we have different ceremony, like we, we are kind of two different tribes 
mashed into one. And mm-hmm. I think those that there's vestiges of those differences in our ancestral parts of, of Nebraska and Kansas. Like they were already doing something different. We were doing something different in terms of that identity piece. Hmm, that's, that's really interesting. That's a good question. But for those that are curious, the oldest known burial in the Americas is Anzic Child. Anzic yeah, let's one. talk about that. I don't know much about I don't, it. Is there an indigenous name for Anzic? Because like for, for Kennewick, like we ancient have the ancient one. one. I don't know why I'm asking you to. Yeah. Let me. Let me. <laughs> I don't think so. But it's, it's the only known Clovis age burial. So over 12,000 years ago, deliberately interred. Okay, in Montana. Montana yep. Park County, yeah. The, the Montana tribes have to have something for it, and I, it's probably another ancient one. I don't know the name of it, and this is going to—I'm going to get roasted. Was found with points and ochre all over the place, so it was very intentional burial. Yeah, but it's interesting that that is not causing as much controversy as say like Ken McMahon or anything like that. I don't ever hear like Anzic brought up as part of these conversations of Nagpra, etc. Yeah. Maybe it's because they have good relations. It's it's interesting, but it's cool to see like the earliest Clovis folks are indeed burying people with a really interesting artifacts, etc. Well, Anzic was pretty hot heated because like the family kept the Anzics kept the remains. Oof, they were reburied, and I think University of Wyoming was involved in some way, shape, or form. I want to say, but they were eventually reburied. Mm. They brought a bunch of Montana tribes together. It was its own thing, but there was controversy very much around it back in the day. Okay. Maybe it's just not as fresh as, say, Kennewick Man or anything like that. Well, because Kennewick was federal property, so like Anzic, do- like NACPA doesn't apply to oh, okay. Anzic. Why not? But that did have a happy story because it wasn't, it was found on private, private property uh, by private contractors. So not NACPA. And it wasn't kept in an institution. Basically, the family was like, we got a dead engine child and it's ours now, Gladys. And they kept it in their Montana ranch house. Gladys. I do remember seeing Anzic was reburied. Multiple tribes took part of it. Yeah. Yeah. It was an intertribal ceremony. But the the artifacts are, yeah, with the Montana Historical Society, which is kind of interesting. If they ever get federal funding, if they did during COVID... That's going. That's uh. That's Nagpra. going back. Nagpra. <laughs> I shouldn't be making fun of such a serious song because I no, just no. finished the Nagpra conference last week here at Bloomington and it was Nagpra is very serious and a very Nagpra very good law. Yeah, we've check out other episodes on that. Yeah, <laughs> we mentioned just going back to the symbolic culture in the caves with the Liddy, and that's that's pretty big because symbolic culture doesn't really boom until like fifty thousand years ago with humans, forty thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. And we always argue, like, are those Neanderthal dots? Is that is that culture? Is that not? Oh, that now Naledi's like hashtagging stuff in the walls over there. Like, Speaking of those sad. dots, I, I texted Emily Van Alts the other day about a recent paper that came out about how those like <laughs> what's his face is red dots. Shit, what's Bernie? his name? The Bernie Bernie Bernie's red dots. Because that's the main thing I talk about. That there's those early cave paintings with the abstract marks and stuff are an early form of writing. And I sent it to Emily and she had things to say. And I invite her on the podcast to talk about it. So she wants to come on and talk about this rock art research. Because apparently rock art research is like the wild west of you could say whatever the fuck you want. But to that, like symbol what is symbolic culture? Culture that like might be a question for another podcast, boys. Yeah. 
I, I think it's just something like you can define I just as wanted like a definition. Yeah, culture. just a definition. Like you're like you can see it being symbolic in some way. I know it's a not answer. Symbolic but. culture or non-material culture is the ability to learn and transmit behavioral traditions from one generation to the next by the invention of things that exist entirely in the symbolic realm. That didn't fucking answer that. Yeah, that's a very modern. Yeah. What can like you do? Social social construct kind of thing. Well, however, but, some evidence Neanderthal origin of symbolic culture have emerged. So okay, cool. So yeah. Oh, so it's like cave, like symbolic culture also represents cave paintings, drawings, and things like that. Art. All right, we'll cool. we'll revisit that on uh, another episode. Thanks you I had fun. y'all for I had fun. Yeah, this was a cool this was a cool paper because this came out and we were like, well, how do we talk about this? Like, well, we could talk about the death. I really wish I'd taken a class on death. Like that's Same. at Boulder. There's like the archaeology of death or something. It's like the most enrolled course. Well, also people could just attend the times we hang out together. <laughs> anyway, on that note, uh, <laughs> thank you for listening. If you have any questions about the or the Naledi burials and stuff, I would uh, suggest you watch Zeke Darwin or at Science Is Real on TikTok. He kn- he knows his stuff really well. Uh, my friend Isaac, or our friend Isaac, I should say. Uh, keep your eyes out. I don't know if yeah, you were on this episode. Oh no, yeah, you, I don't think you were. I was gonna say also yeah. email Stefan Milo. Hello at stephanmilo.com. Yeah. yeah. Tell him we really, I really liked your uh, guest appearance on episode 161 of Life in Ruins. BCCS in that email, so he doesn't know. Just so, please, we'll send you a sticker. We'll end it, we'll reach out to you individually and make sure we get that mailing address for that sticker. Because I, and we'll, <laughs> this is going to be good. This is going to be good. Rate and review the podcast. You know how to do it. And yeah, with that, we're out. We are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. And if you made it this far, Connor, what is your joke for us today? I just found out the Grim Reaper is pansexual. I'm going to come. Turns out death. <laughs> Turns out death comes for us all. <laughs> wow. Do not come. <laughs> this episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States. Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.